Good to see everybody this morning. Um, I'm glad that you are with us. Let me find a home for my coffee here. Let's see if it'll fit. There we go. My name is Robert. I am one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. Um, it's my pleasure to uh, open up the Word of God with you this morning, uh, to read the Word of God, to discuss the Word of God, and to trust God to empower His Word by His Spirit for the transformation of our soul. Um, in 1755, John Wesley, a famous American churchman and pastor, he wrote, I want to know one thing, one thing, and you grammarians don't get on him here when he explains his one thing. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven and how to land safe on that happy shore. Sounds like two, but it's really one. The way to heaven and how to land happy and safe on that shore. God himself has condescended to teach the way. For this very end, he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Wesley goes on to say, oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. Now that I have it, here is knowledge enough for me. And here was his prayer. Oh God, let me be a man of that book. Wesley's desire rests squarely on the conviction that we have a God who not only speaks, but a God who actually reveals, a God who actually shows himself, a, a God of what theologians will call revelation. And like Wesley said, we, we believe that dearly here. And, and like Wesley, we believe that the fullness of God's revelation of himself, his self-revelation came in his son, Jesus Christ, and in him the fullness of deity dwelled. And he is, as John the writer of the Gospel of John said, the living word of God. But like Wesley, we also believe and we also recognize that the life and ministry of Jesus and all that came before him and all that he continues to do after him in God's good grace towards us has been written down in a book. It's the book of God. It's the Bible, the, the scriptures. And with Wesley and a host of others throughout history, it is my prayer and it is my prayer for us. And I ask that it be your prayer that God would make us a people of this book. Oh God, let us be people of this book. Because we believe that the scriptures contain in them everything that is necessary for salvation, for restoration, for redemption, and that a serious study and a serious surrender to the word of God will not only simply produce knowledge, but it won't just produce a, an amount of information that we have in our minds that we can communicate with our mouth, but a serious surrender to the word of God in which God has revealed himself ultimately in his son Jesus, it will produce a deep enjoyment in our souls for who God is and what he's done. Like Wesley, we believe that a deep surrender to the word of God as God makes us people of this book will produce not simply knowledge in our minds, but deep and abiding joy in our hearts. And not just aimless joy, but a deep enjoyment of God and a deep enjoyment of his grace. And it's that deep enjoyment that we're actually after here. It's why we, we, we've... We've titled our series to the book of Acts, Enjoying God and Engaging in His Mission. Because we don't want to settle for simple information about God, simple knowledge of God. We want a deep and abiding joy in God. We want to be a people who enjoy God deeply because it's one thing to know about God. 
It's one thing to know information about God. It's one thing to have a cognitive idea and, and a mental ascent about things about God. But it's a totally different thing to actually enjoy God deeply. And that's what we want to pursue. Those are the kind of people we want to be. And we talked a bit about this last week as we began looking into Acts chapter 13, that when we settle for anything less than a deep enjoyment of God in our lives, we settle for what we called last week the maintenance mode of Christianity. In the maintenance mode of Christianity, whenever that inertia settles in in a church or settles in in the soul of a believer, deep enjoyment of God gets replaced by simple knowledge of God. And God becomes someone to be known, information to be achieved, but not someone to actually be enjoyed. And when that begins to settle in on a people or on a person, prayer no longer becomes conversation and communion and enjoyment in the presence of God, empowered by the very spirit of God that lives inside of us, but it becomes just another thing that we have to do. It ceases being a delight and becomes a drudgerous duty for many of us in the maintenance mode. And like prayer, reading the scriptures, it no longer is a delight as the spirit of God that inspired the words of God that's at work in our souls begins to draw us into a deeper enjoyment of the God the words reveal. Instead, it becomes something that we just simply feel like we have to do. We need to read our Bible. We need to pray. We need to come to church as many times as we can on Sunday, even when the weather's bad outside. And maybe if we're super spiritual, we need to gather with God's people sometime throughout the week, all in an effort to keep the wheels spinning, to keep the machine moving, but never really having a deep enjoyment of God, just duty no delight. And the maintenance mode sets in and our approach to our relationship with God and our understanding of our faith becomes one of preserving what at one time we once experienced. And our focus becomes preservation and not joy, not delight. And it's especially important that we talk about this as we read the book of Acts, excuse me, Um, especially as we're looking at Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 14 last week and this week, because as much as Things like prayer and things like reading the Bible and things like gathering with God's people, the, those things that become routine habits and oftentimes the most obvious forms of duty in the maintenance mode. It's, as obvious as those things are, we need to talk about what it means to enjoy God deeply and how that transforms the way that we live our life when we talk about what it means to actually engage in God's mission. When it actually comes down to living everyday life with gospel intentionality, being compelled by a delight in God to obey the commands of God in the way that God has called us specifically to live those things out in our life, it's very important that we understand the difference of duty and delight. And what we've seen, in, in, in at least last week, and what we'll see more this week and in the weeks to come in the, book, so in the book of Acts, is that it is right and it is good and it is the biblical pattern for engagement in God's mission to spring from the context of worship and deep enjoyment in the person of God. In the maintenance mode, the very idea of God's mission, the very idea of engaging in God's mission begins to feel like another thing that we have to add to our life. Another thing that we have to figure out how to actually fit into our schedule. Another thing that most often, more times than not, comes out of a sense of duty or guilt that we need to do to keep the big guy happy. And that if we do it with enough effort, And if we do it with enough consistency, if we half-heartedly feign some measure of interest in living our everyday life with some sense of intentionality towards God's glory, then at least we would hope and we would pray that we can stave off God's holy frustration with us for a little more time. 
When that begins to be the characterization of our heart as we approach what it means to engage God's mission, we can be rest assured, and let's just say that, we can rest assured that we have succumbed to the inertia of living life in a maintenance mode. And so last week, and then we're going to continue this week, we've been talking about what it means to put to death the maintenance mode of Christianity, what it means to actually put that to death, and what it means to actually enjoy God deeply, and how a deep enjoyment of God is the right and biblical way that the scriptures will constantly show us, especially throughout the book of Acts, for the context of engagement in God's mission, which is nothing more than simply living everyday life with gospel intentionality. Deep enjoyment of God, worship of God for who he is and what he has done. Delight in the person and work of God is the right compulsion towards living our everyday life with gospel intentionality for God's glory and our joy. So what I'm going to do in just a second is I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to pick up right where we left off last week. We're just going to do the very same thing we did last week. And, and here's what I'm going to do. For those of you who weren't here, let me explain what we're going to do. Because it's, it's not so much that it's different, uh, but it's, it's a little bit unusual for the way we usually go through the scriptures. Here's what I'm going to do. We are going to read Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 14. And, and instead of really slowing down a lot, verse by verse and, and kind of line by line, we're going to take a 50,000 foot flyover over Acts chapter 13 and 14, which is the, the establishment of Paul's first missionary journey and the sending of Paul and Barnabas out on their first missionary journey, which we talked about last week. And what I'm going to do as we read Acts chapter 13 and 14 is I'm going to continue to pull out pieces and principles and lessons and ideas that the scriptures spring up in those chapters that, that deal with putting to death the maintenance mode. And here's what I'm going to do. It's a little bit different than, than even last week. As we do that, I, I want to kind of tie into and honor the season of Lent that we're all recognizing and participating in. I mean, for many of you, you are joining us in recognizing this Lenten season leading up to the Easter Sunday. And, and we wrote a, a study guide and a prayer guide for the church to follow as we pray together, um, as we fast together. And every single week we're fasting from, from different things and we have different readings in the scriptures to pray and to examine our hearts and to, to drive us towards a confession and a joy and a deeper joy in God. And, and as we talked about last week, that's kind of our prayer as we go through the Lent season, that God would produce a deeper enjoyment in our hearts of him that he would produce that springtime of, of passion and faith in our hearts. Um, but what we've done, if you've read the guide, and I would encourage you to download it and to join us in the last few weeks, is you, if you read the guide, you'll see that on Sundays, those are actually what's called feast days. You know, Lent's actually 46 days, not, not 40. And the six days that fall on Sunday in the season of Lent are actually feast days, not fast days. And on those Sundays, we've written a prayer, a corporate prayer that we would want you to pray with your family, pray with your communities, um, pray with your friends that's re that relates to Redemption Hill, the, the local church, and, and God's mission in our lives and through our lives. It's, you're praying for our passion for the city. You're praying for our, our passion and effectiveness in evangelism. You're praying for your leaders to continue to be submissive to the Holy Spirit and to continue to lead and protect in the way that God's called us to. We're praying for the church at large. So here's what I'm going to do. Since this is a Sunday in the season of Lent, as we go through Acts chapter 13 and 14, and we pull out these ideas and these things that the scripture is exposing about how to put to death this idea of maintenance in our lives and, and produce a deeper enjoyment of God and, and compulsion towards mission, we're going to turn those into prayer requests. I want you to take these things and I want you to say, are these things true of me in my life? Where am I in relation to what the scriptures are showing here? And then I want you to use those points to be able to pray for yourself 
And I want you to use those points to be able to pray for our church. So I'm going to expand the Lent prayer guide for us this morning. Does that sound fair? Understandable? All right, let me pray because we're going to be reading a lot of scripture this morning. And we're going to need all of God's help and, and all of God's time. Maybe he can make the sun stand still for us or at least break my clock. And, and you won't know the wiser. No. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather together as your people and celebrate your goodness. And Lord, I ask that you would do what only you can do by the power of your spirit. And you would produce a deeper delight in our souls and in our hearts for your person and your character and your worth. That we would find you to be deeply, deeply satisfied. And that that satisfaction would produce a joy that is unshakable, that is unending, and that is all satisfied. And Lord, we ask that you do that for your glory, for your name's sake. That it would transform the way that we see and approach and live our everyday life. We ask this, Father, in the name of your precious Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So if you've got your Bibles, Acts chapter 13. Last week, as we were starting in Acts chapter 13, we came away with these observations and how to put to death the maintenance mode idea of Christianity. And we said that we need to sacrifice, make sacrifice in our life for the good of the gospel. So I want you to assess yourself in the coming weeks. Do I make sacrifice for the good of the gospel, a reality in my life? How do I sacrifice for the good of the gospel? What might God be calling me to sacrifice for the good of the gospel? And I want you to pray that we would be a church that makes the necessary sacrifices for the good of the gospel in this city and around the world. And we said that to put to death the maintenance mode, we need to make room for diversity. So I want you to ask yourself, how, how, how am I doing that? Am I, am I seeking to make a lot of people like me? Am I seeking to define Christianity for the people around me by the ways that I express my faith? We need to make room for diversity. I need you to pray for our church that we would be a church that makes room for diversity, for the different gifts that God has given his people, from the different places that God has called his people to himself and brought him to this place to celebrate and worship and to lead, that we would be a people that make room for diversity. We also said that we need to make worship the context for mission. I need you to pray that it would be in our delight in God, our worship of God, our desire for his glory to be made known that we would be compelled to live the life that he has called us to live, to do the things that we feel he's leading us to do. So pray for us as a church and pray for yourself and assess yourself in this. And when he said last week that we also, in putting to death the maintenance mode, we need to make obedience to God, the expected response to him. That he has commanded all of his people to do certain things. All of us, all of God's people are commanded to make disciples. All of God's people are commanded to do that. And he compels us in different ways. We talked about that last week as our particular calling into the the way in which we obey the commands that he's given us. But all of us have been commanded to do certain things in the scriptures. And to put to death that idea of the maintenance mode of preservation, we need to make obedience to God's commands and obedience to his calling in our life, the expected anticipated response. So pray for us that we would be that way, that we would do that, that you would do that. Just make these prayers. And then we said lastly that we need to let God lead his mission. We need to let God lead his mission. And that's where I want to pick up this week. And and from there, we're going to zip through Acts chapter 14. Yeah, I know you don't think I can do it. I'm long-winded, but we're going to see how we can make it happen. So we're going to pick back up where we left off, Acts chapter 13, with the idea of letting God leading his mission And we'll revisit that very briefly. But we noted 
throughout the book of Acts so far, and then particularly in this text in Acts chapter 13, 1 through 5, we looked at God's role in advancing his purposes on the earth. I mean, it was God who sent his son Jesus to live in our place and die in our place. And it was God who vindicated Jesus' sacrifice in our place by raising him from the dead. And it was God in his son Jesus who gave his people the command to go and to make disciples of all nations. And it was God through his son Jesus who looked at his church in Acts chapter 1 and said, here's the way it's going to work. You're going to be my witnesses from here in Jerusalem all the way to the ends of the earth. It was God who made it possible. It was God who defined the mission. It was God who said, and I'm going to empower you with the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead so that you can be my witnesses from here to the end of the earth. It was God who empowered the mission. And then in Acts chapter 13, we saw that it was God who compelled the church to set apart Paul and Barnabas in a particular calling towards obedience for his general command. It was God who set them apart. It was God who commanded them. It was God who defined their calling. And then we see in Acts chapter 13, verse 4, it was God who actually sends them out. So it's God who leads his mission. And if we're going to put to death the idea of preservation in our life, in our faith, and in our church, and we're going to kill the idea of the maintenance mode and enjoy God deeply, we're going to have to trust him fully and to engage in his mission in a way that honors his glory. We're going to have to make obedience the response, but we're going to have to let him lead it. So I want you to pray that in your life and in this church, we would be a people that were sensitive to God's spirit and God's leading and God's calling of us individually and of us as a church. But I wanted you to note something before we kind of move on. We said all of that last week. As God has given his commands to his people, And as God then defines the particular ways in which obedience is fleshed out in our lives, our particular callings, here's one thing I want you to note, I want want us to see in in the text here. When God compelled the church to set Paul and Barnabas aside for the calling that he had for them to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to go where the gospel had not gone yet before, who did he give that calling to? Who did he make it known to? The whole church, the whole church, everybody who was gathered there in prayer, just like we are right now, God compelled the church to set aside Paul and Barnabas. And when the compulsion had come and the discernment had come and they said, we're going to be obedient to God's command and we're going to set Paul and Barnabas aside, what happened? They prayed and they fasted some more. Do we hear this right? Can we confirm this, Lord? Do we we hear this right or are we just thinking this might be a good idea? You see, in our culture, in the American church world, we we tend to have this idea that when we have a compulsion towards a calling, we say, God has called me to do this. That's code language that in our hearts and in our minds, if we're really honest, gives us like an ace up our sleeve and that calling, however we say it or define it, is supposed to go unchallenged. If I say God called me to go and do X, Y, or Z, by saying that God called me, I'm saying that you have no room to challenge what it is I feel like God is calling me to do because God called me to do it. But what you see right here in Acts chapter 13 is not only the command of God being obeyed by the church, by the people, and the particular calling of God coming to two men to be set apart, but you see the wisdom of God being played out in the church itself in the confirmation of this calling. And you see it because after they prayed and fasted some more, they laid hands on Barnabas and Saul. They said, you know what? We identify with this particular calling of God. And by laying our hands on you and praying for you, as the Holy Spirit sends you out, we're saying that we're with you. 
We agree that this is wise and this is from God. So here's the thing. As we talk about being a people who are submissive to God and we want God to lead his mission, we need to be a people who are sensitive to his spirit, who are compelled towards obedience, but who are humble enough to allow the wisdom of the church to confirm the way that God is calling us. As you feel God calling you in a particular direction, I want you to have the humility to know that God has invested his wisdom in his people. And I want you to go to people that you trust and and share that and allow people to pray with you and allow people to talk with you. Don't do it alone. The calling of God is not a trump or an ace up your sleeve that allows you to do whatever it is you think you want. God's given us wisdom in each other. And so as God leads his mission, the church confirms what, God's lead, what God leads. And I want us to be a people who are sensitive to that, sensitive to his spirit's leading and his calling, but yet humble enough to look for confirmation. Make sense? All right, now we're gonna go. The church has now laid hands. They've confirmed the work of God. The Holy Spirit has sent Paul and Barnabas out. And now we're on the first missionary journey. And we're gonna go town to town, story to story, and we're gonna read and we're gonna see what's going on here. And we'll, talk, we'll read and we'll talk and we'll read and we'll talk. So verse four, they're on their way to Cyprus now. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews and they had John to assist them. So we'll stop right there. As we go and we live everyday life with gospel intentionality and our enjoyment of God grows deeper and deeper and that compels us towards an obedience and an intentionality in the way that we live, the first thing we have to understand as we go out to engage God's mission is that the word of God has got to be central in our understanding of what God is sending us out to do. The word of God has got to be the central word that it is we feel compelled to share. When they first left and landed in Cyprus, there were a lot of things I'm sure they wanted to tell people. And there are a lot of things that we're gonna feel compelled to lead people towards. A lot of ideas, a lot of ways that we can look at people's lives and seek to improve them. But the one thing that's got to be central in our mission is the word of God. It is the word of God about God's son empowered by God's spirit spoken through God's people that God has promised to be his power to transform people's souls. So the word of God has got to be central. Like Wesley, we need to be men and women of this book. And that needs to be a prayer in our hearts. So as you pray for the church and pray for yourself and examine your own life, pray that we would be a church and pray that you would be a man or a woman of the scriptures. That the word would be central in all that we do and all that God sends us out to do here in Richmond or to the ends of the earth. Verse six, let's keep reading. So when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, and seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, note that, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. The word of God has got to be central in our life and in our mission. And the Holy Spirit has got to be 
the power of our mission. If the word of God has got to be central in our mission, the Holy Spirit must be the power of our mission. And I want you to note something. When in this text, Luke is just recording one of what could be a million incidents that probably happened to Paul and Barnabas on these particular journeys. And, and, and it says that as, as Paul approached this man, Luke said he was filled with the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit had already taken up residence in Paul at his conversion, just as it does each and every one of us who have put our faith and our hope in the person of Jesus Christ. So what's Luke talking about? Well, the scriptures actually highlight over and over, and we'll see it in Acts more and more and more, and then there are other places in the scripture as well, that the Holy Spirit empowers the proclamation of his word very often in a unique way. And so we need to pray that as we go out proclaiming the word of God about the Son of God to the glory of God, we need to pray that the Holy Spirit be our power and our mission, and that the Holy Spirit empower our proclamation of God's word. We need to pray that it's not our craftiness, our intelligence, our wisdom, or our strategy that gives us confidence in what we feel like God is calling us to do, but that the Holy Spirit is the power for our mission. Let's keep reading. Now, Paul, you know what? Can I note a couple other things? Let me look at my clock. I'm going to note a couple other things. Here's one reason why the Holy Spirit needs to be our power as we go out and engage the mission of God. We need to understand very clearly that when we live our life every day with gospel intentionality, wherever God has placed us, we are engaged day in and day out in a very real war. I want you to see this here. We are engaged in a very real war. When you go and you live everyday life with gospel intentionality in your neighborhood, on your campus, in your office, or across the globe where God would send you, we need to know that our brothers and sisters in this room and around this city who are enjoying God deeply are engaged in a very real war, a war not fought with weapons of modern convention, no missiles, no bombs. It's not a war for oil. It's not a war for water. It is a spiritual war. And the eternal state of souls is what's at stake. We need, and you can add this to the list of of prayer, we need to live everyday life with a wartime mentality. John Piper's done a brilliant job in this decade of defining that for us. We need to wake up every single day and have the mentality that we are engaged in a very real spiritual war, where what is at stake is the eternal state of souls. This is what God has called us to. And we need to have that understanding because we have a very real and a very active enemy. And that enemy seeks to oppose the enjoyment of God and the transformation of souls to the glory of God. And whenever we seek to live our life with gospel intentionality, praying and speaking and hoping and expecting people to see the glory of God in the face of Christ and be transformed by God's grace and God's mercy, you can expect opposition. There is a very real enemy who does not want to see people transformed, who does not want to see God glorified, who does not want to see you and others enjoy God deeply. There's a very real war and we need to pray, pray, for a wartime mentality. And you need to ask yourself as we're praying and going through Lent, am I living as though we're in peace 
Or am I living as though there's a very real war? And, and as we do, we need to note and we need to pray. And I like the way it happens here. We need to pray for a unity amongst ourselves. We're in a very real war. And our enemy seeks not to only attack us and oppose us from outside, but in his craftiness, he seeks to attack and oppose us from the inside. What you don't really see very explicit here, but you'll see more explicit in Acts chapter 15. It happens right here in verse 13, where it said, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. At the end of Acts chapter 15, you don't have to flip there right now. We'll, we'll get there probably next week. What you find is that there was a very sharp disagreement that grew and that arose between Paul and Barnabas relating to the John Mark. Paul has felt that John has deserted them and what God had called them to do on this mission and chose to go elsewhere. And a division arose between God's people. And we have a very real enemy who will oppose us, as we will see over and over in Acts 13 and 14 in the next few minutes, from the outside, from false prophets, from magicians, from pain, from suffering, from the outside. But many times he will seek to oppose us from the inside. And we need to pray not only for a mindset and a perspective that sees every single day that we are engaged in a very real and eternal war, but we need to pray that as we are engaged in that, that God preserve a very real and abiding unity amongst his people, amongst you and I, amongst us and other people in the city who proclaim the gospel, amongst you and your wife, as you seek to reflect the glory of God in your home, in your marriage, in the way you love your family and raise your children, God will, I mean, the enemy will seek to oppose that and he'll seek to produce division amongst that. And if he can produce division amongst us and he can get us to think that our enemy is not out there, it's not spiritual, it's not Satan and his workers and their effects, but it's one another. And he can get us to turn our focus on ourselves and on each other and away from him. He's accomplished his purpose. So we need to pray for a wartime mentality. We need to pray for a wartime unity. You can go back and study the generations of the First and Second World War and the unity that came out of a sense of purpose amongst the people across a nation who had very little in common with each other from state to state. What they had in common was the purpose in which they were engaged together in. And we have a purpose. We have a savior. We have a mission that we've been called to. We need to ask God to produce in us a mentality that recognizes that and to produce in us a unity that preserves that. And then as we engage in this spiritual war and this spiritual battle, we should pray for victory. We should pray for gospel victory and the transformation of souls. And look at what happened in verse 12. Though opposed from the outside, and then in verse 13, opposed from the inside. Look at verse 12. The proconsul believed. When he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So we need to pray for gospel victory in this very real and eternal war. We need to pray that people would hear the teaching of the word, that that would be central in our mission, and that in the power of the Holy Spirit, as we live everyday life in the midst of a very real and spiritual war, that God would produce a unity amongst us and that he would empower the teaching of his word and that people would hear that and be transformed. Sound good? All right, let's keep going. Now they're going to go to Pisidia, verse 14. But they went on from Perga and they came to Antioch and Pisidia. This is a different place than where they were sent from. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. 
And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Just stop and notice that. Paul and Barnabas have come into town, and they've gone to the synagogue, as is their custom, and the synagogue, we'll see in a second, is full of devout Jews and God-fearers, people who weren't Jewish by heritage, but had come to learn of the God of the Jews and fear the God of the Jews, and they, they show up in the synagogue, and the leaders of the synagogue look at them and say, oh, glad you're here. If you've got any word of encouragement, go ahead and speak it. No topic, whatever you want. Just go ahead. We, we, we want to recognize and honor you for being here. We need to pray. We need to pray that God would open doors and give us favor to speak his word empowered by his spirit for the transformation of souls. We need to pray that God would open doors and give us favor with unbelievers and that when he does, we would recognize it and that he would give us the courage and obedience to walk through them. I mean, here they are. They're standing in the synagogue. I mean, they're about to preach the gospel, and we're going to read through it really quickly. They're going to stand up and preach a message that's going to destroy the reality of what's going on in that place. What an open door. But look at the courage and the obedience necessary to actually take it. And we need to pray for both. We need to pray that God would give us, would give you in your everyday life, open doors, favor to speak the gospel and that when he does, you would have the courage and the obedience to actually do it. What a a request. What a a request. You see, when, when we're satisfied with the maintenance mode, when we're satisfied with the preservation, one great indicator that you're there is that this prayer is not a reality in your life. When you want to preserve whatever it is that you've got, when you want to maintain whatever it is that you've got, when you want the wheels to keep going, but you're really okay if it never goes anywhere, you are not praying and you are not asking God. You are not pleading with God to open new doors for the gospel to go forward because that creates mess sometimes. One way to kill this thing dead on is to be passionate about praying for God to open doors for us and to give us the courage and the obedience to actually walk through them. Let's see what happens. Verse 16. So Paul stood up. Of course it was Paul. Paul the preacher, not Barnabas the encourager. Paul stood up. I wonder what would happen if it was Peter and Paul. And they, might have, they both might have stood up and I put in. Sorry. That's just a thing in my brain. So Paul stood up. And motioning with his hand, I don't know what he did, he said, men of Israel, and you who fear God, and he's about to preach a great sermon, and Luke is going to record just a piece of it. So as I read this, and it takes like four minutes, don't expect me to preach for four minutes every week. Paul preached big, long sermons. This is just a piece of it. He preached so long, people fell asleep and fell out of windows. We haven't done that yet. I might have been close. You might fall asleep, but you haven't fallen out of window. But Paul is about to preach. He's about to preach in this synagogue. And it's made up of devout Jews and God-fearers. And what you'll see here and what we'll see throughout the context of the book of Acts is that whenever the gospel is preached, the context that it's preached in may change. Paul is going to preach differently to the philosophers in Athens than he is the Jews and God-fearers in Pisidia. 
And what we need to note and what we need to understand is that when you live everyday life with gospel intentionality and God opens up a door, the context in which you're going to present the gospel and communicate the gospel is going to change. The starting points may change, but the essential elements of the gospel never do. The essential elements of the gospel never do. The character of God, the sinfulness of men, the sufficiency of Jesus, the necessity of faith, the demanded response to the message, it never changes, never changes. The context does. And so as we read this sermon, I just want to note for you as we go through it, those essential elements and kind of point them out so you can see them in this sermon. And another day, another time, we may come back and actually dig this sermon out because it's, it's a great sermon. But listen to this. Look at verse 17. Note how he begins with the character of God, which would have been a connecting point for this group. This was a group in the synagogue that would know the Bible. They would know the person of God. They, they, they revered the person of God. They, they feared God. So he starts with the character of God. And listen to how he does it. He says, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arms, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them land as an inheritance. All of this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he, talking about God, had removed him, he, talking about God, raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man from my own heart, who will do all of my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he, God, promised before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So our rescue and our redemption comes from God's initiative. It's his plan. He acts first. His wisdom is made a way for his love to satisfy his just wrath without compromising his holiness. The character of God is essential in the message of the gospel. And this is where Paul starts. And then he's going to get to the sinfulness of men, the sinfulness of you and I and our souls and our hearts. And he's going to contextualize it for the people he's talking to. Verse 26, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, among those and those among you who fear God. So I'm putting myself in your place, Paul says, your brothers, you fear God. To us has been sent the message of salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, talking about Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. They fulfilled them, the the message of the prophets, by condemning him, talking about Jesus. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. So God fulfilled his promise to his people by sending his Messiah, Jesus, Paul says, the Savior. And we, brothers, he says, have rejected him. And we've killed him. And now from the sinfulness of men, he's going to get to the sufficiency of Jesus in his life, death, resurrection, and glorification. It's all in here. Look at this. Verse 28. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, his life lived in our place, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. That's his death in our place for our sin. But God raised him from the dead, glorified him in his resurrection, Paul says. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, 
As also it was written in the second Psalm, so now he's going to go back to the Bible they're familiar with and show them exactly how what he has said is found in what they already know and understand. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, and I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. Verse 37, but he who, he who God raised did not see corruption, his glorification. Life in our place, death in our place, resurrection in our place, glorification where he sits at the right hand of God right now. Verse 38, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, gospel promise, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, listen to this, Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So there's the necessity of faith in this person, Jesus. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if, no one, even if one tells it to you. So he's asking them, he's compelling them, he's imploring them to believe in what God has done and what God has promised and what God has fulfilled in this man Jesus, and here are the responses, because there's always a response to the gospel. The message of the gospel in and of itself, when proclaimed rightly, always demands a response. And here are the responses. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many devout, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you thrust it aside, now listen to this, and judge yourselves worthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The gospel brings with it the urgency of eternity. As the gospel is proclaimed in all of its fullness, in its varied context in which we live, we proclaim it with the urgency of eternity. Eternal life is at stake in how you and I and other people respond to the gospel. So pray that as God would open up doors, that we would have the courage and the obedience to walk through them. And that as we do, we would proclaim the gospel clearly, understandably, and effectively. And then pray that God would do what only God can do and that he would open up people's hearts. That he would open doors, that we would be obedient, that we would speak clearly, but that he would open people's hearts. Look at verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Pray that God open up people's hearts as we speak the gospel clearly. And the context will change. The starting points will change. But the essential message never changes. God created us to find him all satisfying. And in our sin, we have rejected him. And our rejection of God has made us his enemies, deserving his wrath. But in his mercy, he made a way to satisfy his wrath against our sin without actually compromising his holiness. That was the big issue that God faced. And that was the big issue of the gospel. How was a just and holy and righteous God going to actually express his love and deal with his sinful and rebellious people without compromising 
any of his attributes and any of his character. And that's the big issue. The gospel message is always the same. God made a way to satisfy his justice and his holiness. God made a way for his love to satisfy his justice and his holiness and his righteousness without compromising any aspect of his person. And he did that in and through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived the life we were created to live, a life of worship and dependence before God, day in and day out, though tempted as you and I are tempted, yet never giving in to sin. He lived the life we were created to live in our place. And then he laid his life down willingly on the cross, exhausting the just wrath of God for our sin. God exhausted his righteous wrath against sin on his son, Jesus, who willingly absorbed the wrath of God in our place. He died, he was buried in a tomb, and God accepted his sacrifice in our place and vindicated him by raising him from the dead. And when God vindicated Jesus by raising him from the dead, he conquered once and for all Satan, sin, and death. That for those who, like Paul just said, believe, put their faith in this man Jesus for who he is, for their standing before God, something that the law of Moses could never actually achieve in and of itself. No obedience could actually achieve a right standing before God. But for those who put their faith in his son, this man Jesus, to achieve for them on their behalf a right standing before God, forgiveness is given. That's the gospel message. Forgiveness is given to those who believe in Jesus Christ, life, death, and resurrection in our place, and the promise of eternal glorification and transformation in the presence of God for eternity. That's the message of the gospel. It never changes. The context may change. The starting point may change, but it never changes. And if that is not a message you have ever believed in, I want you to know that when you're here, my prayer is that God would open up your heart every single time you hear it, that you would see his glory and his beauty in it, and he would transform your heart. No tricks. That's my prayer. I pray it before I get up here every time. That at some point as we communicate the gospel, if you've never heard the message or believed in the person of Jesus, that he would transform your heart through the preaching of his message. And we need to pray that God would open up doors and we would have the courage to walk through them and that we would be able to speak the gospel clearly and that God would open people's hearts to believe it. That God would do what only God can do. Let's keep going. We've got more to go. This mission and this obedience, it doesn't come without a price. I will agree, the maintenance mode is much safer. But eternally, it's very empty. Verse 49 And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they drove them out of the district. But they shook, talking about Paul and Barnabas, they shook off the dust from their feet against them, and they went on to Iconium. Verse 52, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Pray that in the midst of opposition and in the midst of difficulty and in the midst of suffering, that our continual enjoyment of God would produce in us a joy in the midst of difficult circumstances. Pray that God would produce in you and in us as a church a joy that comes from him in the midst of difficult circumstances. Verse 14, verse 1. And now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles 
and poison their minds against the brothers. Now, difficulty is going to come in a lot of different ways, and we're going to see more of it as we finish up chapter 14. Opposition is going to come in a lot of ways. Slander, dissension, division, pain, (laughs) violence. We need to pray that God would produce in us a joy in the midst of it. Verse 3. They remained there in Iconium for some time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Pray that as we live everyday life with gospel intentionality, that God would accompany our life and our message with his power. Pray that as we proclaim his grace boldly, as we speak passionately about his grace, that he would accompany that speaking with power. With power. Pray that. We're going to put to death in maintenance mode. Let God show up with power. Let him show up when you preach the gospel and change people and heal people and transform people. That'll put this idea of preservation to death. As it happened, and God showed up and they spoke and division came. Verse four, but the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and others with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, here comes more opposition. They learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe cities of Lyconia and the surrounding, com- surrounding country. And there they what? What they do? Verse seven. Continue to preach the gospel. Never back down from the preaching of the gospel boldly. They never did in the face of all this opposition. They never backed down from speaking the word of grace boldly. Is that true of you? Pray that it be true of us. Now they're gonna move on to Lystra. Look at verse eight. Now, Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and he had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, he said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. That man sprang up and he began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas, they called Zeus and Paul, they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and they wanted to offer a sacrifice with the the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments, and they rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the past... In the past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. But even these words, they scarcely restrained themselves, restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. So pray as we go forward in God's mission, and we'll see a couple different juxtapositions here, that we would respond rightly to people's responses of us. When things go well, when people are being saved, when what looks on the outside like a measure of success begins to happen or continues to happen, pray that we would respond to it with an appropriate humility. How easy would it have been for Paul and Barnabas, away from home, away from people who knew them, to respond to the praises of this people in a way that flattered themselves? How easy would it have been to accept the sacrifices on behalf? How easy would it have been to take that stroke of ego and begin to believe that it was what they did that produced such an amazing response in the lives of people and hearts of people? Instead, they responded with an appropriate humility, recognizing that it's God who is at work, that this worship of them is vain and and foolish, and, and pray that as we go forward and 
a measure of success takes place, that we would respond in a Christ-like humility because crowds are very fickle. And we need to respond the right way to people. We're going to see a a turn in in just a second. Verse 19. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, now look at this. Here they are. A whole city is ready to sacrifice oxen to them. Barnabas is Zeus. Paul's Hermes. Before they could blink their eye, just imagine them taking that just for a moment, just indulging in that for a moment. Before they can blink their eye, here come the Jews from Antioch and Iconium. Now they've persuaded the crowds who want to sacrifice to them, who want to call them gods, they've persuaded the crowds to stone them. And they drag Paul out of the city, supposing that he was dead. They stoned him so bad, they thought he was dead. We've already looked at that once in the book of Acts. That is a very brutal and painful process. And they drag him out as though he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, just look at this. He rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. I mean, if anyone had a pass on keeping going, I mean, if anyone had a day off, a week off, if anyone had earned or deserved a break, it was the Apostle Paul. But when the disciples gathered around him after he'd been stoned nearly to death, forgive the disgrace, hopefully it's not slander, but I imagine it kind of like Hulk Hogan. Remember how Hulk Hogan would be all beat down on the ring? And his hands start shaking. All of a sudden you're watching, you just knew Hogan was going to get up and just tear people up. <laughs> Forgive me, God, for that illusion. But Paul is stoned to death, laying outside the city, and the disciples gather around him. And he just rises up and he goes on. He's going to keep preaching the gospel. I mean, pray that that in the face of difficulty, we would have a perseverance that we could say with Paul, we may be struck down, but not destroyed. And pray that in setback after setback that we have and continue to incur and will incur, that we would have the grace of God to persevere in the midst of difficulty and pain. Pray that with yourself. Pray that for this church. Ask yourself, ask yourself these questions as you pray. Is this true of you? And then verse 21, we're going to round home base here. When they had preached the gospel to that city and they had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Verse 23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Pray, listen to me, pray, not only during the season of Lent, pray for us, for God's people here at Redemption Hill, day in and day out as we continue forward, that we would have a consistent, dare I say, laser-like focus in what God has called us to do. They went from town to town, making disciples. They had one purpose. They had one mission. It showed itself in a variety of contexts in this one journey, but they had one purpose, to make disciples, to communicate the gospel of God's grace boldly, to trust God for the transformation of souls and to encourage those who believed to find their deepest and most satisfying and abiding joy in God.
pray, pray that in the midst of all the things we can put our hands to, amidst all the choices that we have to make, against all the options that lay in front of us as a people, that we would have a laser-like focus in what God has called us to do, to cultivate gospel-centered, grace-driven, and mission-minded people, encouraging God's people to find their deepest enjoyment in God and his grace. And as we do that here and where God would send us, we would gather God's people together and see gospel-centered, grace-driven, and mission-minded churches planted. They had one purpose, make disciples, plant churches. From beginning to end, this is what they did. And note that when they appointed elders in every town, as churches were established in those places, as disciples were being cultivated and people were being transformed, the way they started those churches was the way they were sent out from their church. They did it in the context of worship. With prayer, with fasting, with worship, with an expression of dependency and humility, they put in place churches throughout the entire region. Pray, pray, pray that we would stay focused on what God has called us to do and that we would be a place and we would be a people that cultivated gospel-centered and grace-driven and mission-minded people throughout all of Richmond, Virginia to the ends of the earth and that we could be a part of gathering God's people together and seeing healthy, gospel-proclaiming, gospel-dependent, God-enjoying churches established in those places. We need prayer for that. Verse 24. Then as they passed through Pisidia and they came to Pamphylia and when they had spoken the word in Perga they went down to Italia and from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they had arrived and they gathered the church together they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles and they remained no little time with the disciples. Pray, pray, pray that as we enjoy God and engage in his mission, as he sees sufficient to open doors for us and give us the courage and obedience to walk through them, as the gospel is proclaimed clearly and lives are transformed, as the spirit of God opens up hearts, as we encourage people to enjoy God deeply and see churches planted, that when we do those things and see those things happen, that we would celebrate God's grace in them, that we would not make much of ourselves in it, but that we would recognize the grace of God and the hand of God at every single point along the way. And that as we gather together, our celebration is not in ourselves and what we accomplished, but in what God had commended us to do and what God and his grace had saw fit to do in us and through us. Pray, pray, pray that we would make much of God. And however God chooses to use you and however God chooses to use us corporately, that we would tell stories of God's grace and not stories of our accomplishment that our engagement of God's mission would always be kept in its proper perspective. And then I'll pray now that our enjoyment of God will produce in our lives individually and in our lives corporately an engagement with his mission and that our worship of God would compel us towards a speaking of the grace of God. And as you and I, I'm gonna say this, as you and I go out as we've said over and over, to live everyday life with gospel intentionality 
And as you go out and gather together in the communities that God has called you to and connected you with, and as we come together as a corporate body and seek to live intentionally together and pursue the purposes for which God has commanded, pray, 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 pray that we would see God's grace at the center of it. And as we do, I promise you, I promise you, as we enjoy God's grace deeper and we face the opposition that will come because it will come individually and it will come corporately, know this, the book of Acts has declared and it will continue to declare that the purposes of God and the works of God and the transformation of God's grace can't be opposed and it can't be stopped. It can't be stopped. And as you and as we learn to enjoy him deeper and deeper and that compels us to engage more completely and more fully and opposition comes and we can face opposition with the confidence and the courage knowing that his work can't be stopped. And we can give ourselves over freely and wholly to what he has called us to do and who he has called us to be. So this is how we can pray. This is how we can pray during Lent. As we wrap up, this is how I will pray for us now. Join me as we Father, thank you for your word that reveals to us your person, your character, your faithfulness, your truthfulness, but ultimately reveals to us your son. Father, I pray for my life, for every life in here, and for this church corporately. Lord, that by your grace and by your spirit, Lord, we would be a people that are submissive to the leading of your spirit, that surrender to your word and seek your spirit's direction. Lord, I pray that as we, as we follow your spirit, as we follow your leading of your mission, we would be obedient to what you've called us to do. That obedience would characterize the people that call Redemption Hill home. Lord, I pray that as we're obedient to your commands, that you would open up doors throughout this city and throughout this world. Open up doors for us to walk through with courage and with boldness to proclaim your gospel. And as we do, every single day, wherever you have sent each and every single one of us in the context of our life, as we proclaim the gospel, as we gossip the gospel, Lord, I ask that it would be done clearly, that you would, that you would engage our mouths and engage our minds to speak clearly to the people that you have called us to speak to, but that more importantly, regardless of our words, Lord, that you would do what only you can do and open up people's hearts, transform people's hearts as your gospel is proclaimed. And as we go forward, Lord, as we face opposition in the midst of this mission, I pray for humility, I pray for patience, I pray for perseverance, and most importantly, I pray for a tangible and real and lasting joy in the midst of difficulty and suffering and pain that comes only from a greater and deeper enjoyment of you, that we will be marked by that. I pray for that, Father. And I pray that as we continue on, and we're faced not only with opposition, but with distraction, Lord, that we would be focused on what you have commanded and called us to do, and that's to cultivate the souls of men and women to reflect the character of your son, to make disciples, to encourage one another, to be satisfied in you on a deeper and deeper basis day in and day out and that we would gather your people together here to the ends of the earth and see churches planted that would proclaim your sufficiency and your grace. Lord, may that be a reality in our lives and may that be a reality in this church for your glory and your name's sake. Amen. Amen. You made it through two chapters.